Belling History with the Good Time Girls, a hyper-local podcast about the quirky history of Bellingham, Washington, and the fourth corner of these United States. Even though we like to keep things close to home, these stories are no less entertaining to the masses and those who find themselves, unfortunately, outside of the Pacific Northwest. And we are your hosts. I am Colby. And I'm Ren. And we are co-owners of Belling History Tours, also known as the Good Time Girls. If you want to know more about our tour business, visit our website at bellinghistory.com. This episode we like to call Belling History 101 or White Men Come to Whatcom slash systemic racism slash xenophobia slash legal sex work, then evangelicals and illegal sex work and other bedtime stories. (laughs) This episode is a real bird's eye view of the fourth corner history. To us, context is everything. So consider this a primer to make subsequent episodes more enjoyable. So yeah, we are putting this out as an early episode after our intro, because whether you live in Bellingham or not, this is all good basic history of this area to know and be aware of sort of the background that might be useful while listening to the podcast and our stories that are largely based here in this town and in this place on the planet. We're broadly covering things rather generally. That's redundant. Mm -hmm. But some of which we might delve into more detail at a later time. And as we mentioned in our intro episode, we're not going to necessarily proceed linearly from one episode to another, but we wanted to get some of the basics in an episode for reference. Yep. So with that, let's start at the very beginning, shall we? Julie Andrews once said, it's a very good place to start. It's a very good place to start. <laughs> Let me read you. Okay. So <laughs> go ahead and get your jammies on, your teeth brushed, and tuck in for Belling History 101 with the Good Time Girls. Okay, so a few current factoids about the city of Bellingham. Bellingham, Washington is a city north of Seattle, around 20 miles from the Canadian border. And the current population of our fair city is around 90,000 people, of which 15,000 are Western Washington students. Damn. And Bellingham is number 12 in population in the state. But how did this city come to be here with all of us living in it? Colby? Well... First and most importantly, we need to acknowledge that the town of Bellingham is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary lands of the Lummi Nation and the Nooksack tribes. So Coast Salish peoples who have lived in the Salish Sea Basin all through the San Juan Islands and the North Cascades watershed from time immemorial. And they continue to care for and protect the lands and waters with their many generations of knowledge and tradition for which we are truly grateful. And many of our local place names come from their languages. Names like Whatcom, Colshan, Seahome are from indigenous terms or approximations of them. A lot of the history that we're going to talk about today and that we talk about in general is that of settler colonizers who only arrived in this area 170 years ago compared to tens of thousands of years or time immemorial. So we wish to acknowledge the legacy of settler colonialism and displacement and our position as the primary beneficiaries and as those who perpetuate the settler colonial system and the responsibility conferred on us by these facts. We recognize and support the sovereign 
sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond, and we want to increase awareness of their history and honor their living cultures. Because we are not indigenous, we feel there are stories that are not ours to tell. We are going to have in our show notes, we'll have a list of media created by Coast Salish people. You can listen to their stories told from their perspective and give them a follow. Please check out the website of the Lummi Nation or the Lakdamish people at lummi-nsn.gov and the Nooksack at nooksacktribe.org. There are further links to social media pages there. There's also a great podcast I want to give a shout out to called Young and Indigenous, and we will link to that and to the Children of the Setting Sun Productions, a performance group who have also put out videos and other media. We'll link to all of these in our show notes. We feel that taking responsibility ultimately begins with truth-telling and acknowledgement, and we're still learning. Um, we encourage other non-Indigenous people to also to continue to educate themselves about all these issues and decolonization. We also want to give a shout out recommendation to Bellingham History from Below by Associate Professor of History at Western, Josh Soretti, who occasionally offers the tour as a guided tour, but we will link to the YouTube video version in the show notes as well. Yeah, indeed. With that, let's talk about early European and American exploration here. Bear in mind, the Lactemish people and the Nooksack people here for 10,000 years, and then lo and behold, in the 1700s, European exploration begins in these parts with English and Spanish explorers, hence the name of the San Juan Islands, etc, etc. During this period, it was also common for Russian trappers to come through these parts. So these are the early days of contact between explorers and the indigenous populations, which had devastating results as exposure to foreign disease took a major toll on tribes by way of smallpox, as we know, and other diseases. So of particular relevance for the town of Bellingham is the expedition of Captain George Vancouver of the British Navy. This is when the bay on which our modern city sits got its name Bellingham Bay. As Captain George toured around, they began mapping the geography, naming everything, which, by the way, already had Coast Salish names. Our bay was named Bellingham after a real interesting guy. Not. His name was Sir William Bellingham, and he was, get ready for it, the controller of storekeepers' accounts for the Royal Navy. Real, I'm sure he was just an insanely interesting man. Sir William, actually, though, he never saw the Pacific Ocean, let alone his namesake bay. But at this point in history, towns had not been built, let alone named, and so for a hundred more years, the only thing called Bellingham was the bay. Can you do a British accent? Oh yes, we have to. We have to say Will, William Bellingham with the proper <laughs> pronunciation, which would have been Sir William. Oh, sorry, Sir Willem Bellingham. Bellingham. Yeah, something I, like that. I there's only one thing I can say with a very good English <laughs> accent, and I learned it from my best friend's mother-in-law, and it goes something like this: <laughs> Put away your icky bicky doggy dicky. Oh God, <laughs> I love that. That's very useful, Ren. Thank you. <laughs> and you're all welcome. Yes. Yes. Uh, we have too many ham jokes and hamster jokes. Mm. So that ship has sailed. British Navy. <laughs> Literally, it has sailed. Bellingham hit the road. No. It's Bellingham because we like hamsters a lot. Yes. Okay. So we're going to do a little quick geography and U.S. history refresher. Boy. Because what the hell? 1700s is a long time ago. <laughs> so in 1776, colonies here um, in the, quote, New World had declared 
declared independence from England. And at that time, there was just the 13 original colonies. I don't yeah. know if anyone else had to sing that oh, stupid yeah. song. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> that's like what immediately comes into my mind. All of this was over on the east side of the continent, leaving tons of room for infestation. I mean, um, exploration and <laughs> westward expansion, quotes. Mm-hmm. So that is to say the West Coast wasn't really a part of what we think of as the United States for quite a while longer. So you got the big old Louisiana Purchase of 1803, where the newly minted U.S. purchases a whole bunch of land from France, and that doubled the size of the nation at the time and really kicked off the most intensive and brutal years of westward expansion. I was at the Northern State Asylum in Cedar Woolley. There's a recreation area there now. It's an old abandoned Mm -hmm. asylum. Well, part of it's abandoned, and you can go explore around in a lot of old buildings and stuff there, and there's lots of graffiti, and my favorite graffiti just said, fuck the Louisiana Purchase, (laughs) with a frowny face. And I was like... History nerds. Yes. (laughs) I know. It's like the kids are all right. This warms my little history heart. For real. Love it. (laughs) Anyway, so kicking off that party was the infamous Lewis and Clark expedition of 1803 through 1806. Sure, everybody who grew up in the Pacific Northwest got to learn about that in school at some point. So they were mapping these parts and sending word back of all the bounty. And, you know, this was really pretty much paving the way for folks to start heading to the big, wide, wild west. Also very early out here in the Pacific Northwest, you had French fur trappers and the Hudson's Bay Company, and they were installing fortified fur trapping posts or forts here in the Pacific Northwest Territory, places like Fort Vancouver and Fort Nisqually. And there were also competing Protestant and Catholic missionaries, specifically targeting indigenous tribes for religious conversion. Oh, yes. It's uh, so familiar. These were the days of, here's another good term, manifest destiny. Remember that? So this is the phrase coined in 1845 that refers to the idea that the U.S. is destined by God to expand its nation and spread democracy, capitalism, and European ignorance across the continent. Uh, This was a term used to stir emotions in U.S. citizens and to justify the removal of Native Americans from their ancestral lands. It's it's just a lovely period, and I'm sure you didn't learn it in that context when you were in middle school. Allow us. (laughs) In the 1840s, though, as a result of Manifest Destiny, you get another early educational memory, the Oregon Trail. (laughs) Many, many of us died of dysentery. You are not alone. Yes. The trail has been had been established already as a horse trail by those earlier for trappers and missionaries and whatnot, but then it gradually expanded to a wagon trail. Uh, so in 1843, it is considered the year of the Great Migration, when you first start seeing large numbers of would-be settlers in the thousands heading over that trail to what would become the Oregon Territory in 1848. But these parts that are now called Washington hadn't seen many of these settlers until 1849 when we see the good old California gold rush. And more importantly for our story, we see a lot of men who did not strike it rich in the California (laughs) gold rush. Those are the men we call failed 49ers. These desperate explorers still saw potential for riches as they spread upward, looking for opportunity to create industry even without the gold and making it more enticing for white European settlers 
settlers, quote-unquote, to make themselves cozy in an already settled land, the U.S. instituted... This is kind of a a rare one for people to know or remember, but it was the Donation Land Claim Act of 1850, which granted every male citizen, or who had declared their intention to become a citizen, over the age of 18 in the Oregon Territory, pretty much this whole West Coast, who had cultivated land for the past four years, a half section, or 320 acres, just because they were there. So this basically conferred legal ownership to all the earlier squatters, and then, in addition to that, the law encouraged settlement by granting 160 acres to those arriving in the territory between 1850 and 1853, and then later extended to 1855. And those white men, they could double their acreage by securing another claim in their wife's name. So it behooved them to take a woman folk uh, (laughs) for many reasons, but that extra 150 acres did not hurt, right? Yes. So 1852, in either July or October, depending on sources, <laughs> a man, William R. Paddle, who was an employee of the Hudson's Bay Company and also a British citizen, arrived in the area, having heard rumors of coal from indigenous persons. So he starts poking around looking for some coal in the area where now it sits the Chrysalis Inn over by Fairhaven. So in December of 1852, Henry Roeder and Russell V. Peabody show up via California. They were looking for a waterfall, a place to build a lumber mill, and Roeder went back to California to get supplies and try to recruit people to come join him in his endeavors. So meanwhile, January of 1853, the first donation land claims are filed on what is now Bellingham Bay by Paddle that we mentioned and two other Hudson's Bay employees named James Morrison and John Thomas. This is all down by Fairhaven. So they're technically the first claims, but they're British and they didn't really stick around long. So you don't very hear much about them often. I guess since you could file a claim if you declared you were going to become a citizen, okay. (laughs) But really they were like, is there coal? Maybe we'll file this claim. And then the coal didn't really materialize into anything that monetarily exciting. So they just bailed. But so in March of 1853, Washington Territory was created from the bigger Oregon Territory. And in May of that same year, you get the Eldridges, Edward and Teresa, who were convinced by Roeder to come up and work at the mill. And today is not the day we're going to go into a lot of detail on any of these characters we have just named, but they were here and they filed these donation land claims fairly early on. None of these folks would have survived without the assistance of Native peoples whose knowledge and skills they relied on to do so here. So that brings us to the 1855 Treaty of Point Elliot, which was signed by Chuitsit and other Lummi and other tribal leaders and that ceded most of the tribe's aboriginal lands to the United States in exchange for a 15,000-acre reservation on a peninsula between Bellingham Bay and Lummi Bay. We're not going to go into more detail about this today. We will also link to a play in our show notes that talks a lot more about the treaty called What About Those Promises? Suffice to say, that treaty also paved the way for, guess what, the arrival of even more settlers. A lot of way paving. The road just keeps getting bigger and wider and more people keep on coming. So the U.S. Army arrives in the late 1850s to build Fort Bellingham, Military Road. You get George Pickett of the Civil War infamy. 
out here pre-Civil War, um, when he was still in the United States Army, building military roads and things. You get the Fraser River Gold Rush of 1858. That's up in what is now British Columbia, and that brought thousands of people swarming into this area looking for gold. Mm-hmm. So out of those early donation land claims, four settlements grew around the bay, and they each had their own vibe, even in those early days. Roeder, Peabody, and Eldridge's claims would eventually become the town of Watcom, which carried with it the intention to create an industry town and was the first to attract women and children. Across the bay from Watcom, where coal had been found while blasting out stumps, became the town of Seaholm, which to me seems to just be an afterthought of Watcom until these two combine and tellingly take the name of New Watcom. And then south of Seaholm, where the Hudson Bay dudes had found coal earlier and filed the first claims, was a town first called Unionville and later reinvented as the first place on land named Bellingham. It was located where the Chrysalis Inn exists today, and like today, it is a kind of in-between corridor between Bellingham and Fairhaven. And then just below Unionville was the town of Fairhaven, platted on the original donation land claim of the Hudson's Bay guy, John Thomas, which became, upon his death in 1854, the claim of a young wild man named Daniel Jefferson Harris, or better known today as Dirty Dan. Dan platted the town of Fairhaven and built a dock in the hopes of creating the bachelor's paradise, but he later sold it off and moved to California, making him the quintessential eccentric millionaire. So I like to think if we made like the breakfast club meme of the four original towns, I think, and Colby, tell me if I'm right, I think Ali Sheedy, the weirdo outcast, is Seahome, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. And then Emilio Estevez, the jock, is Wacom. Natch. For sure. Yes. <laughs> and then Fairhaven, with its origins as the bachelor wild paradise, and then its segue into this rich gentrification, is like if Judd Nelson and Molly Ringwald had a baby. (laughs) Oh, God. Someone write a fanfic about this. Oh, my God. It's beautiful. Or at the very least, make us a meme, please. I don't know how to do that. But though the early days of these settlements could fill many podcasts on their own, this is not the episode for that. Uh, But what you need to know is that eventually, despite their rivalries and differing politics and vibes, the towns combined. Right. So Bellingham and Fairhaven merged. The original Little Bellingham, also known as Unionville, (laughs) got basically subsumed by Fairhaven and Seaholm and Whatcom. As we mentioned in the 1890s, this all goes down. So those grow together into bigger towns. And the 1890s is like boom time for Bellingham Bay. In 1889, Washington had become the 42nd official state of the United States of America. And in the 1890s is when we first get real railroads coming into the area around Bellingham Bay. So that really opened the doors again even wider for more people to show up because prior to that it was you had to take boats. (laughs) And so the 1890s and early 1900s is kind of prime time for a lot of our tour content and it's really when a lot of people show up. It's like peak culture clash when you get more women and children and family values and people reformers trying to tame that wild west vibe. So a lot of interesting shit was going on (laughs) and a lot of rapid changes. 
The towns in the early 1890s and 1900s had a gazillion saloons. They had red light districts, but like I said, also starting to get churches, etc. And so in the middle of all of that going on, the town of Bellingham is officially born in 1903. Fairhaven and Whatcom voted to consolidate as one in the month of October, and then the town was officially christened in December amongst the clanging of bells. Ding dong bell. Ding dong. Bellingham. All right, so the name Bellingham was just essentially chosen because the rival Fairhaven and Whatcom could not agree. Um, there was the joke suggested in the newspaper that they go with Whathaven, which I just love and always bring up on tours because why? Why didn't we have that? I would have voted for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so now now you know the birth story of Bellingham. It was convoluted and long, <laughs> but it will be helpful to keep all this in mind in future episodes when we jump around through time. But aside from all that, our history was shaped by a few other key factors. Sin engine, baby! Brothels and saloons! These establishments paid regular fees into the city coffers, paying for a lot of our infrastructure. The good time girls, we like to say that this town was built on the backs of women on their backs. And their stories are difficult to find, but their presence here on the bay had a really profound influence on the survival of this town. But this is a bird's eye view. So for more on that, you have to come on one of our sin and gin tours. Wink, wink. As for the gin, our town relied heavily on the money from the many, many bars. And yet we also voted to institute prohibition 10 years before the rest of the country. Uh, and again, we won't go into detail today, but suffice it to say, we will talk more about this subject. <laughs> it will come up. And it's good to know that prior to the nationwide prohibition, there was a wave of grassroots movements across the country that spread from the municipal level, dry towns, to counties, to states, and eventually the whole damn country. And we were one of those little baby communities. They really know. kind of, um, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of our story that revolves around that, for yeah. sure. And the way Prohibition ended is another interesting thing, mm-hmm. too, in a sort of piecemeal, wacky way, similar to how you get marijuana now laws being kind of patchwork happening across totally. the country. It's very similar. Yeah. So another big thing, um, back to this legacy of colonization and racism, Bellingham has a reputation of being very white, and that's not without reason, and it's not an accident. The first colonizers to this area were largely Midwestern Protestants, people of European ancestry or birth. Think like German, English, Scottish, Welsh, heritage, that type of thing. Bellingham has had a lot of different ethnic groups over the years. Not that this is past tense or to say that these communities don't exist in some form today, but historically there were, you know, sort of communities that banded together more first generation, they were more insular, and over time you had a lot more crossover and dispersion. A lot of immigrant groups correlated with jobs they had been doing before coming. So, like, Welsh and Chinese came to work in the coal mine, and Scandinavians showed up by the droves to work in logging and fishing industries, and Croatians came to work in the fishing industry, and... You know, there were definite trends along those lines. We had an Italian community, a Greek community. You had an early Jewish community, mostly from Russia. We had a large Japanese community. We had a Filipino community. We had a black community. And of course, the indigenous communities on whose lands the rest have all come to live on. But is it is evident that certain persons and groups had a much harder time here and that levels of whiteness and perceived foreignness factored into that. 
xenophobia and racism have shaped the population makeup of the town and the Pacific Northwest in general. There are laws, ordinances, covenants that were sometimes quietly created, also very well-documented and public incidents, uh, some of which seem horrifying by current standards, but were more or less just par for the course. The Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s and the subsequent Chinese expulsion, the Sikh riots of the early 1900s, big, big topic, the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan in the Pacific Northwest. There was also forced incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Lots of topics that we may talk about and we often talk about on tours and in other contexts, but we will probably go into more detail on some of these things at some point. Yeah, for sure. Worth talking about, but the list, (laughs) the list goes on and on. We could be here all night. So let's transition just a little bit back to the, the forming of the town and kind of where we are today, because there's a lot in between. It is kind of interesting to me how in a lot of ways Bellingham had these bigger city vibes around the turn of the 19th century. It was kind of a, a big deal, a big city here on the coast. And that was because of that huge influx of people, also the economy, you know, things like logging, fishing, mining. In the early days, the local economy was really based on that resource extraction. And that's why a lot of people ended up coming here for this fertile land. And in the beginning, those resources to them seemed infinite. Like that was the draw. Um, But in reality, it only took a generation or two to seriously deplete those resources and change the makeup of of this town and the culture. Uh, After the Great Depression, particularly, it started to get a vibe that lasted for years, which was working class, depressed factory town. And because of the paper mill, It smelled like farts. (laughs) Yeah, um, people are sometimes surprised to be like, well, yeah, this was a very conservative working class kind of a town, especially after, say, the 1920s and through fairly recently. It's still very white, a little less conservative, but at least within the city limits. So you had like, yeah, a little World War II wartime boom thanks to shipbuilding and so on. And then you get the whole post-war family values and prosperity. But still, those natural resources had been so depleted, the mills and fisheries had just been sort of closing left and right. Like that just never can't recover. So also big bummer about the 50s was all our fancy old buildings were falling into disrepair, um, being torn down or given mid-century makeovers. And then we get into the 60s, the civil rights movement, environmental movements, the hippie era, Fairhaven College becomes part of Western Washington University. You know, all of these things are influencing the culture here and Bellingham becomes San Francisco North. (laughs) Starts to get its liberal vibe and reputation. I was born in 1973. So when I grew up here in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Bellingham was still a depressed mill town. Uh, the Bellis Fair Mall came along and wiped out our downtown. The, the last of the factories were closing down. Um, so it's been interesting. I've seen a lot of changes just within my lifetime to this new Bellingham, mm. which is a tourist and service economy Yay! <laughs> yeah, here we are trying to tap that—that <laughs> that tourism. But trust us, there's not a lot of money in it. It's a labor of love. What we're doing here, anyway. <laughs> the largest employers today are the hospital, Western Washington University School District, and local government. Oh, reads like a Springsteen song. <laughs> All right. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some more happily than others. Oh, God. Okay. Well, 
<clears throat> that concludes our episode. Hopefully it gave you uh, some help maybe to appreciate future episodes and also spark your curiosity for some of the history that we have in store. If you haven't already, visit our website at bellinghistory.com for tour schedules and more history in our blog posts. And don't forget to look through our show notes for more Coast Salish voices and history and to wrap things up as we generally do. Colby, what's your takeaway for this episode? What you've learned today? Well, I'm trying to think of a succinct way of putting it, but as always, I don't know, history is important and every every era has its own lens through which we view history. It's not always a linear march of progress and we can always learn and we can always reevaluate and try to figure out <laughs> what <laughs> what we can learn, what we can do better. Mm. We don't always seem to learn, unfortunately, but we keep trying. Yeah, it's important to keep trying, to keep facing it, for sure. Well, I think along the same lines, I think I learned, um, or my takeaway from this episode would be that every town has a history. A lot of these specific Northwest towns, you know, have a similar history. Mm-hmm. Ours, though, in particular, and I think uh, a lot of people who I've met are surprised to, to hear are somewhat, you know, yucky parts of our history. Not somewhat, are very fucking yucky parts of this history in so many different ways. We think of ourselves as just this little liberal bubble. But I think in every town and throughout history, there's always some place where your town just smells like farts for a while. <laughs> yeah. And we grow out of that and we learn from that, hopefully. And uh, and that's our goal. So, guys, man, that was a hard one. Bellingham 101 is hard to put into a half an hour, y'all. So. Yeah. And, you know, nobody likes dates and things <laughs> like that. It's, it's the most... That's why everyone goes through school not liking history. Yeah, that's why we just show a lot of pictures. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's the best part. <laughs> Come back for more fun stories. And um, we love you. We love you, Bellingham. <laughs> Make us that meme, please. Okay. Good night. Sweet dreams. We'd like to thank Devin Champlin and the late great Lucas Hicks for the use of the Gallus Brothers song, Too Bad West Coast Blues. You can find the Gallus Brothers tune on Bandcamp, and you can find Devin Champlin at Champlin Guitars in Bellingham. All right, we're thinking, we'd like to thank you for listening to Belling History with the Good Time Girls. Check out our tours and events, read our blog with podcast notes, etc. at bellinghistory.com. Drop us a line at podcast at bellinghistory.com. And don't forget to subscribe and review our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. And tune in next time for more Belling History. Most of the time, we just love to see blue. That's too bad.